now it's 500 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of his Wittenberg church, attacking the Catholic church's corrupt practice of selling indulgences to absol absolve sin, setting in train the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but was this really about religion? Or was it a cynical power grab by some of the princes of Europe? Or was it an early manifestation of Brexit, uh, a disillusionment of the periphery uh, with the perceived corruption of the cosmopolitan center? What is its relevance today? Now, to discuss these and related uh, matters, we have assembled a scholarly and uh, ecumenical uh, panel. Uh, on my uh, left here, um, we've uh, Adrian Empey of the Church of Ireland Historical Society. Uh, and beside Adrian, beside me here, we have Alison uh, Forrestal of uh, NUI Galway. And then on my right, uh, John McCafferty of UCD. And on the, the far right, uh, Giza Thiessen of Trinity College Dublin. Uh, now, if you're not familiar with the head school format, uh, don't relax too much because uh, it is a school. You are expected to pay attention, uh, to, to do a bit of work, get involved, ask questions, put your hand up. Uh, so, I mean, at any stage of the discussion, if you have something to say or something to contribute, just uh, get my attention and uh, we, we'll pass it on to the panel. And certainly there will be plenty of time later on for uh, discussion uh, from you, the audience. Now, um, John Caffrey, maybe just get started with you. I, I, I think we need to just get some idea of what was the, the, the political state of play in Europe. Because one thing that strikes me is Charles V, or Carlos V, whichever way you want to pronounce it, who is the Habsburg emperor, uh, by a fate, dynastic sort of a, a quirk, had managed basically to, to end up in control of all of Europe except France. Am I correct in that? Well, yeah, large swathes of Europe anyway. So yeah. it's just give us a rundown then, what was the state of play then? Because it's almost like this, uh, the, 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 the Reformation comes totally out of the blue, unexpected, We're, or we, we'll, just, we'll come back to that maybe in a minute, but give us a, a quick pen, pen picture of Europe at that time. Okay, well, two perhaps different things are going on at the same time. First of all, the church in Europe, the Christian church in Europe, because there is only one church, um, is about a thousand years old and has developed customs and traditions to go with that. And, is so large and so comprehensive that apart from the Jewish populations and the few Muslims in, on continental Europe at this point, nobody thinks of being anything else other than a member of the church. So in, in one sense, Europe is deeply united in that, in what we now consider to be Western Europe and all the way over to the Orthodox and um, Islamic lands, there is one church. Then within that two, politically two very different things are going on. On the one hand, there's a super state of the kind that you talk about ruled by Charles V emerging. But on the other hand, there are clear signs that some of the realms of Europe, <clears throat> like France and England, are going the way and becoming what we begin to see as um, modern nation states. Now, just in terms of, just give us a, what exactly the Charles, in terms of territory, what did Charles V control? Okay, Spain, mm. perhaps Austria, where else? Most of southern um, Italy. Uh, the, the two Sicilies, um, the Spanish Netherlands, well, in fact, the whole area of the Low Countries. Okay. Um, uh, now, the thing Austria. is, of course, this is not unified in the sense that there's different jurisdictions, different political traditions in this, you know, what looks like an empire. It's, it's what's called a dynastic union. It's okay. all focused on him. Right. Um, and an awful lot of this Reformation stuff is about men and their reproductive problems. Um, <laughs> Basically, <laughs> frankly. Can we can also maybe bring you in on this, Adrian, and um, all of you, I mean, all jump in if, if, mm -hmm. if you want to. 
Just in terms of the church, uh, I mean, how wealthy, powerful, or corrupt was the church at this stage? <laughs> wow. Um, well, Two obviously, it, it, it is, it's a very wealthy institution because over a thousand years, um, people have um, given gifts of estates and so on, so you have some immensely um, wealthy monasteries. Um, you would have immensely wealthy bishops too, who govern very large dioceses north of the Alps, unlike uh, Italy, uh, where they were small and urban-based. Um, and over the centuries, they too had often been gifted by their rulers, kings and so on, and high nobility. So that, um, yes, the, the church sometimes estimated in areas of Europe to be possibly about a third of the landed wealth was in the hands of the church. I don't think it was that high in Ireland. Um, I think that um, the church itself was... Um, on the one hand, immensely sophisticated. I mean, you've only got to look at the papal registers, letters, and so on, to see the extraordinary range of the papal chancery. Uh, you know, parishes in the west of Ireland or parishes in Lithuania or somewhere. Uh, you know, and the, the, these all... So, so I think that's the, the, the sort of extraordinary um, range and sophistication of, of, of the church's uh, organs of, of state. At the same time, in the middle of it, it's immensely complex uh, because the papacy, um, you know, it, 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 it goes up and down. Uh, and uh, in the 15th century, it was pretty down. It had survived uh, attempts to subject it to great council at Constance and, and so on in 1415. Uh, after being divided at the end of the 14th century, we had two and sometimes three popes. So the prestige had 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 uh, diminished, and um, in the end of the sort of 15th century, the Renaissance uh, papacy, with all its brilliance, and of course also attracted a great deal of uh, bad attention for the, the morality of 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 Rome and so on, but brilliant uh, also. So it, it 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 it's very complex. I think that. I would take the view that um, the late medieval church, for all its problems that people had acknowledged for, oh, a couple of centuries, uh, there have been many demands for reform. Nevertheless, it, 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 was, um, it was very lively, and all kinds of things were happening, spiritual movements uh, and um, Revivals, for instance, in, in Ireland, the tremendous uh, revivals of the mendicant orders, uh, and which I think in many ways responsible for salvaging uh, the Catholic tradition in Ireland. Um, I would say to take even this place here, we still have um, uniquely in Ireland the church warden's accounts from 1481 for here. They show uh, a medieval congregation that is uh, where the laity exercise very considerable control. They're obviously very proud of their church, um, and they maintain the building, the fabric. Uh, they pay for chaplains to do this, that, and the other. So you do get the sense that um, the church is very far from uh, being uh, dead or that all of it uh, needed an overhaul. I would uh, certainly not be happy with that description of the late medieval church.
that's funny now coming to you as a Church of Ireland man. You're saying then the Reformation wasn't necessary then, Adrian. <laughs> that's a big one. I, I, well, there's two things here. First of all, um, as a historian, as a historian, you, you to try to engage with the past. You enter into a conversation. Uh, and um, it's, it's not really for us to make these judgments on what people do uh, in the past. I would be very reluctant to put questions uh, like that. At the same time, I suppose if you're asking me, was uh, the um, Reformation inevitable? I, I don't think it was. Uh, I think that the circumstances that led to Luther's protest was, was, was um, what should I say, incremental. He started out as a pastoral, local, regional protest, and for all kinds of ecclesiastical politics, he's dragged into something bigger. Uh, there have been other protests, um, you know, in, in the 15th century, but they'd not come to anything more than regional. Okay, so being you in here, um, because you were talking about not being judgmental. I mean, mm. Luther could be pretty judgmental in his time. Uh, talk to a little bit about the man. Who was Martin Luther? You know, before you go on to, and then my next question is, what was it that provoked his ire? Um, I suppose, first thing you have to think about, you know, he was a medieval man. So he, he, he lived, he, he is a man of his time. He wanted originally to become a lawyer, and that's what he studied for. But he had this incredible experience, uh, and that seems to be uh, true, historical, that one night he went into a thunderstorm, and he said, if I get out of that, uh, he prayed to St. Anna, uh, I will dedicate my life to God. So he's very deeply in that tradition. So then he becomes a monk, and he becomes a, he is a very, very scrupulous monk, over-scrupulous. So he's full of conscience, full of thought. And then gradually he comes to realize that the gospel really is about freedom. So what really got him going was the, the question about the, the freedom of the human being before God. Yeah, and he saw all around him, of course, that there were loads of abuses going on, and people in Germany were completely fed up with paying all this money to the Pope. So there was a great, great sense of uh, so, un so there is a there is a Brexit parallel there. Just in my introduction, this idea that people are feeling ripped off by the centre to some extent. Yeah, they felt very ripped off by the centre. I mean, but you see, the Brexit would mean we want to kind of, you know, we want to break with the Catholic Church. Now, that's the last thing that Luther had in mind. Mm. He wanted simply reforms for the Church. Mm. You know, and the first thing would have been that, you know, get rid of the abuses. Mm. And if the Pope had gone with us, my sense is that, you know, the split would not have happened. If they really had cleaned up about the abuses. Can I just bring John, yeah. John, you in there on that one? So this, there's a perception then that, that Germany basically, you know, that is, is being ripped off by, by Rome. Is that true any more than anywhere else? I mean, as, as, as Adrian has explained, it's a, it's a very complex uh, institution. It needs to be financed. Mm -hmm. um, I think what happens in Germany is, is that Germany is, is not Germany for a start. It's a mm. patchwork of independent... Yeah lordships and dominions and towns and bishoprics and so on and what we see is if you want to use your brexit parallel it would be rather like if, if a movement started in essex to break mm. with 
London and it suddenly cascaded yeah. into spreading from county to county in England and then into Wales and Scotland perhaps and cascaded into a unified movement to do something else. So I think the extreme local nature of Germany facilitate the, facilitated this and mm. nobody saw it yeah. coming. Nobody right. saw it coming and I, you know, it is true that Luther didn't want to, uh, he wanted to reform the church. Um, no one could think of, I think it's very important to say this, no one could actually think in terms of the idea that there would be a permanent situation in which there were multiple churches yeah. mutually exclusive. No one could get their heads around that because that had never happened before. Right. Yeah, that wasn't the intention. I think you also have to bring in here the printing press because that really made all the difference. Mm. That suddenly all these ideas could be spread like wildfire. And you know, when Luther went to Worms, he was, he was kind of celebrated like a hero. So it just, it captured the mind. No. So, the, I mean, the print press is, is a bit like social media today. I mean, it is, this goes viral. I mean, he was yeah. the modern thing. Trump <laughs> tweeting. Adrian, <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you want to come in there? Yeah, just, just I would also say that, uh, you know, I agree uh, what uh, has been said, but that, uh, you know, that the, nobody could think outside the idea of... Um, of a unified church. Now, that also went, we need to bear this in mind, because we are looking back at something that was someone else's future, mm. which was never clear any more than our future is clear. But um, the point is that I think it would have gone for virtually all of the major Protestant traditions. They, they, they saw themselves as reforming the church from within, and they expected mm. that one day, their reform would embrace the entire church. Uh, and um, uh, they, they didn't uh, think in terms of breaking mm -hmm. with the church, that, that, that sense, that, that was not really present uh, in the 16th century. So that that um, paradigm applied to all uh, in a way. But isn't that what made it in, in the long run, you know, just looking forward by a century to the, you know, the religious wars, that's what made it so intractable. In other words, this wasn't a struggle uh, to, to, for the, 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 to, to establish the existence of some dissenting religious tradition. This was a struggle for hegemony of the whole thing, going by what uh, you're saying. N n well, n I don't think that the struggles that are going on in, I, I, I think Geza would be better, mm. but, but I, I don't think that uh, the, these struggles were any more than regional. Uh, as, as John said, they weren't. Nobody was planning to conquer the whole of Europe. That, that was mm. not, 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 not part of the bargain. But mm. what local rulers were trying to achieve on, on, on both sides what was control, greater control of the organs of the church. And I went go back all the way to Constantine in the fourth century, but um, within the Catholic Church itself, I mean, the monarchs of France and Spain and Portugal exercised huge control over the patronage and appointment of bishops and so on, and, and very little control from Rome. So that rulers saw the um, management of the church as, as part of, and parcel of um, the management of their, their, their territories. Mm. Uh, and we don't have to think they're necessarily cynical about this. Uh, mm. They would have seen it as their duty from the time of Constantine on, really, mm. to, 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 to take care and to protect uh, uh, and defend uh, the church. Every medieval monarch swore to uphold the liberties of the church and so on. And um, so that, that, that was it, it, the, the cura religi, religi, religionis was, was, was um, 
pretty much applied across Europe. So that I think we've got to put it in that context. Alison, can I bring you in on that, right? Would you go along with that? I mean, because in my introduction, you know, I just to, to, to provoke discussion, um, I, I, I raised the point that is this just a political manoeuvre? Like once, once, it, once it, the, the Reformation gathers ahead of steam, is it a political manoeuvre by certain uh, princes in Europe, you know, for a power grab, you know, that they can... They, they already exercise some control, but they want to exercise total control over it depends local on, churches. It depends on the ruler. And perception is as important as anything else when it comes to reality, when it comes to dealing with the realities of the situation. Because it's like, for to go back to this point about people were fed up with the abuses. Yes, they were, but it's perceived financial irregularities as much as anything else. What has to be remembered is that in Germany and in France as well, perhaps even more so, an awful lot of the money that's collected that people are being told to be fed up about or becoming fed up about is not going to Rome at all. Yeah. It's staying in Germany and it's staying in France and it's going straight into the hands of royal families and into the hands of nobles and also into the hands of city councils, which had been really successful in German imperial cities uh, in the generation up to 1517, really successful in actually beginning to tax the clergy, in appointing clergy themselves and in ensuring that much of that, uh, what they would have regarded as financial privilege of the church that was uh, you know, draining, if you like, local communities actually had been reduced very substantially. So in that sense, the 350, was it million, billion that was on the buses for Brexit in Britain, it's a similar kind of situation that uh, people are perceiving um, that this money is going to Rome. Things like papal annats are, but much else isn't. So there is an element of cynicism involved, I think, with political rulers and political authorities um, um, just, in, in this kind of process. Just to clarify there, Alison, what you're saying is that a lot of this money that is perceived to, that in, in, in a popular perception mm -hmm. is being, you know, collected, straight up, yeah. sent mm -hmm. to Rome. Mm -hmm. You're saying, in fact, it, it is uh, it is spread out locally, yes. sent locally. Yes. Um, Does that contradict some of what Giza was saying in terms it, of the, it, the perception in Germany? I don't think it contradicts at all, really, in a sense, because some of this money is definitely going to Rome, yeah. and then an, a, some of it isn't as well. Yeah. It is staying um, in local areas, but it is not going. Uh, it is not being maintained in the hands of ordinary people. It is going into the hands of noble families and, and others who are effectively creaming off incomes from benefices. They're getting pensions from bishops. They're doing all kinds of things um, which benefit themselves and enable them really to um, uh, strengthen their uh, dynastic or their, their regional power uh, in, in any given area. Now, it seems, it seems to me that what tips the balance then is, and it's funny how history repeats itself, is a, a, a building project whose budget was out of control. I'm talking here about the, the restoration of um, St. <laughs> Peter's, right? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> happens all the time, right? Mm. And this is when uh, then John Tetzel comes up with this great wheeze of selling indulgences. Yeah. Maybe, Geza, could you, could you briefly give us a rundown on the theology of indulgences? Anyone else who wants to contribute in this one, right? Just explain then what, what, was, the, what was proposed here. Well, it was basically it is trying to get uh, one's relations, I suppose, out of... Um, um, take purgatory. Yeah, out of purgatory, purgatory. Yeah. exactly. And um, so you paid sums of money for that and you would be assured then that they would get out and you yourself would go do a good deed. And uh, it was basically telling, um, I mean, it just telling lies to the people and making them believe something that was absolutely not happening or which was totally sinful. 
So they were certain to monetize uh, what, what, you know, you do a good deed. That would, you do that a good would, deed. You're trying to buy yourself a place in heaven. So instead you, you just know? pay a cash sum. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You know, and right. that's why Luther comes up and it says it's about faith, it's about grace. Uh, everything is given to us by God. Uh, pure grace, pure faith, and nothing can buy us a place. You know, it, it all brings in also the question of, you know, how much does the human, is the human being involved in, 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 in salvation? Yeah, um, for Luther it would have been very much a question of gift because he really just reread St. Paul and that's where he found all his theology and Augustine, you see, those two. Would it be correct to observe maybe that his legal cast of mind came into play here and obviously spotted like a, 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 a you know, a, 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 you know, the rule, the rules being, being Robin he Rochelle didn't really Robert. have a legal cast of mind. No, I would, no, he didn't have a legal mm. cast of mind, I wouldn't think so at all. I think he just became a lawyer because his father wanted it. But he okay. just had this incredible sense of vocation, you know, and, and he really did have, you know, he was a very, very scrupulous monk, prayed all the time. Uh, and uh, then, uh, you know, just rereading St. Paul, that was really, I think, the, the clue to what made him rethink the whole teaching of salvation. Right. Now, this is in, yeah, sorry. Yeah, just on indulgences. You. Yeah, just on indulgences. <clears throat> well, I, I absolutely agree with Geyser. That's what outraged uh, mm. Luther because before this, he, he'd been arriving at uh, a theological point whereby, um, uh, uh, you, you know, you, the, the, the only faith is, is, is the means of uh, the, uh, faith alone is 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 is, is the means of of, of um, gaining God's acceptance, so to speak, and, and not anything we can do, good works or whatever. Whereas in uh, the late medieval theology, um, certainly good works was quite a part of it. Now, for instance, in in ordinary um, wills that you'd find, some of them are here for Dublin diocese in the fifteenth century. Um, people um, lay out money for good works, you know, and works of mercy and, um, uh, and, and all kinds of, of, of practical things. A lot of almshouses, uh, in, which were very good things, providing for the poor and so on, it was a way of um, uh, expressing. The idea was that you, you, you were expressing your contrition, the theology of the indulgence, insisted upon prior contrition. It wasn't, uh, you know, it, but the perception of it was that it was a money transaction. But the, mm. the theology was rather carefully nuanced, actually. And, and, the, and the purchase of an indulgence was supposed to be accompanied by other, another act yes. as well, such as uh, a penitential act, like mm -hmm. going on pilgrimage or giving yeah. alms. Um, but I think that Gaze is absolutely right in the sense that, again, it's this perception, isn't it? And the church had done very little to counter quite a popular idea yeah. that if you bought an indulgence, then that meant that your sins were forgiven. When what indulgences were supposed to be about was part of this, these acts of contrition um, that people were doing. Um, and they also were supposed to be a, a um, they would be a, a 
a reneging of temporal punishment, not of purgatory, but the popular perception, which the church had done very little to counter um, in marketing indulgences, and there was a lot of marketing of indulgences. Yeah. The popular perception mm. was that um, essentially you bought one and maybe you went on pilgrimage as well or said some prayers or whatever, but essentially you, you would reduce your time or yes. a loved one's time in purgatory. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Now maybe I just want to come in there um, because, you know, the perception has often been that Luther was against good works. So Catholics are all about good works and, 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 and Protestants are all about faith. Now I think that's it's really important that he actually said that, you know, works are absolutely important and they really belong to faith. But this the spirit, how they evolve. You don't go do so many good works in order to get into heaven. You do good works because that must be a natural follow-on from your faith. In other words, mm -hmm. to say that you have faith but you don't do any good to your neighbor, well, that's not a credible face. Okay. So he said, you know, for it's him, manifestation of your faith. good works is a given. Yeah, yeah. They just must arise, they just do arise when we believe in a God who is love. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how, how long did it take for the, okay, the, the, he, he nails up his, his, did he actually nail it up, by the way? Is it, is it <laughs> curious like? He probably never did. did. He <laughs> <laughs> he even probably never, never did, but he sent them out for discussion. Um, no, but that was in 1517. Now, how long did it take before the, the break, you know, the definite break occurred? Excommunication is in, the document is in July 1520, isn't it? Yeah. And it reaches Germany by December 1520 because there's a very famous location, isn't there, in Wittenberg, uh, where there's an oak tree, and the current yes. oak tree is from 1831, yeah. but it has, it was replacing a much older one, and that's supposed to be the site where Luther's supporters burned, burned the bowl of excommunication. But it wasn't until April of 1521, then, that he became a persona non grata in the empire. So yeah. at that stage, he was essentially, you know, under threat from both yeah. church and empire. Okay, and in, in, in previous eras, he would have just been rounded up, burnt at the stake or whatever, right? So why Maybe, did yeah. that not happen? Why, I mean, why was Luther, he was obviously protected. Mm. For, you know, who was he protected by and why? Well, and Frederick the Wise. Yeah. Frederick the Wise yeah. was his great protector. And without him, he would probably would have been killed. Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he really kidnapping. helped him. I don't know whether you've seen the Luther film that came out a few years ago with uh, Ralph Fiennes. And there is a meeting between the two. Well, that probably never happened. It seems that he never actually met him. Uh, uh, but he liked his thought. Frederick the Wise simply liked Luther's thought and uh, said, you know, he's one of my subjects. I will protect him. He founded the new university, of course, in Wittenberg. I mean, Wittenberg was a tiny little place in the back of beyond in, you know, in Saxony. So um, Frederick the Wise also had 19,000 relics. He was a very wealthy man. Hmm. Mm. Um, but yeah, he just supported Luther and his cause. I always think it's interesting as well that, um, I'm talking too much now, <laughs> no, <laughs> but it's, I not. always think it's interesting that Wittenberg University was founded in 1502 and it's the first university in Germany to be founded without papal approval. Right. And I, that, that in itself, it just, I don't know what it means, if it means anything or what it tells us about Wittenberg itself, but it's very interesting to me mm. that that is the first mm. university in Germany and that is where this happens, you know, a, a, 15, six, um, 15 years later. It tells you maybe something about the power of the local princess at the time. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. John, just go to you on this one then, about the, the, the people, the princes who backed Luther then, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what kind of risks were they taking? Like, you know, was there the wherewithal by the emperor or whatever to, to, you know, take them out or whatever? Well, there's quite a lot of 
religious conflict rumbles on through Europe for the next 150 years or so. So in one sense there is, but then in another sense in a very, very decentralized region with a lot of volatile power play, these guys are calculating the angles mm. and there is enough room for them to establish what becomes, loosely becomes a movement. Um, but there's a lot of time spent by, for instance, Henry VIII hated Luther. And the reason he hates Luther is yes. Luther keeps trying to advise him, keeps trying to tell him what to do. So you can see there are points at which Luther and his followers overstep themselves by trying to tell rulers what to do, because previously with someone like Frederick the Wise, they've had a good experience. So, mm -hmm. But things, the, the dynastic principle is very, very important here, and I wasn't been entirely facetious when I mentioned about reproduction because succession and the production of heirs was so important. Things could change very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. So for instance, you know, a child ruler could die and a whole area could change mm -hmm. its religious complexion mm -hmm. just like that. So there's a huge um, instability which is reflected of the general instability in early modern Europe where lifespans are short and people die suddenly and unexpectedly. Yeah, just you use the word there, a movement, right? Mm -hmm. Now, let's just interrogate that for a minute okay. because the next breath you said like that, you know, this dynastic uh, volatility yeah. could change the religious complexion, but that would seem to imply there's not a movement at all, that it's just basically a, a question of the coup's ratio, who, 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 mm. who's the guy at the top? Um, well, no, there's both, both things happening, yeah. sorry. Yeah. So my, my, what I'm getting at is, mm. to what extent was this a popular movement? There's quite a lot of, in, in parts of okay. Germany, there are places where, and I can't remember these, where, you know, one Sunday, there's full-on mass vestments, everything, yeah. and the next Sunday, the people walk in, the citizens, mm. the students in particular, students are really important in mm. this movement, mm. everything is in German, there are no vestments, there is a table, there isn't an altar. There are several instances of, where this happens. There are always kind of steps that take yeah. place of, over the course of about a year where you'll get um, some preachers who are starting to preach some of the new ideas and they may be coming in from outside or they yeah. may be some of the locals. And then you'll get a bit of unrest with public disputes. You'll get perhaps a bit of iconoclasm and breaking down. And then it's only then really that you tend to get city councils sitting up and thinking, mm. uh-oh, mm. we're going to have to control this. And they start to organise disputations between traditional clergy and the these new preachers and the, they decide, they announce that the city council is going to be the arbitrator and judge of the outcome of the debate. They also tend to make rules, and this is the dead giveaway, um, they say that we will judge whether the preaching is according to scripture and that is the giveaway phrase because then you know that they effectively, either there is a cohort in the city council who are supporting it or they're very, very afraid that if they don't move towards it that there will be a kind of popular uprising, often coming from guild members um, mm. who are really highly organised in places like Augsburg. Mm. And there are spectacular moments where, for instance, there's this famous incident in, in Denmark where one of the country's leading preachers who is, I think, a Dominican, gets up into the pulpit and takes off his habit and says, I've had enough of this. Mm, mm, so mm. this happens as well. There are individual spectacular moments of conversion. And almost all the early Reformation leaders are themselves people, by and large, they're members of the mendicant clergy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And these are the best educated, mm -hmm. most religiously committed people in Europe. And the irony is, is that an awful lot of what they think, whether they end up Catholic or they end up Lutheran or even Calvinist, is basically the same. Mm. They just want to live the gospel better. Yeah but it takes radically different forms. So there are a whole bunch of people, their mates who've all been to university together, 
who find themselves with all the love and hatred that people who have previously been close to each other are mm. capable mm. of displaying. So it's intensely personal. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think yeah. um, one, one of the very problematic areas uh, you know, of the early Reformation is the degree to which it was popular, that it, it mm. was uh, you know, uh, subscribed to by people on, on the ground. And um, that's very difficult to determine, uh, in fact. And, uh, for instance, there's been quite a bit of revision going on in, in about the English Reformation. Yeah, I'm just going to be aware. You know, the, the old narrative was that it was kind of, there was anti-clericism and, and all of that kind of thing, and uh, it was almost a kind of pre-gone conclusion. Uh, and, uh, but I think a lot of uh, more recent scholarship um, suggests that there was actually a tremendous amount of resistance mm -hmm. uh, parochially and, and on the ground. And uh, so it, 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 took, um, it took decades and decades, perhaps, in, in, in England. Now, it's a very stop-start kind of reformation yeah. mm -hmm. for dynastic reasons that John mm -hmm. has just talked about. Uh, but um, eventually it becomes embedded. Mm. Maybe sometime in the later 16th century when people begin to become familiar with the Bible in the vernacular, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and be, be, you know, uh, begin to, you know, the, the sort of Puritan movement, which is based to a considerable degree on their own reading. But that, that, that's later, that's decades on mm -hmm. from Henry. So there, there's huge areas of unknowing uh, mm. and we have to be careful in sort of crossing that territory with ready-made formula. Now I, we, we need to get on to the, the English Reformation but before that Doug is I want to come back to you because you mentioned in terms of uh, Luther's motivation his focus on the, the idea of, of freedom right? Yeah. Uh, now of course freedom is one of these things that's open to interpretation you know and, and of course in, in 1525 the peasants of Germany had their own interpretation and rose up in revolt. And the first question is, were they inspired by Luther to any extent or was this completely a separate issue? Um, I know it's a complex thing, but I mean, were they fired up by the, the rhetoric of Luther? Well, I think the person most involved were the, were, was, were the peasants. Uh, it was Thomas Münzer. And uh, he went further than Luther, and in the end, he, he and Luther fell out because he felt that Luther was far too nice to the kind of, you know, to the ones in power, to the leaders. But they were the ones who were protecting him. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas Münzer, uh, he, he really supported the peasants, and it was a terrible war. And Luther, in the end, I think, was really, really shocked, actually, what did happen with him. He was, you know, quite taken aback, but he also really gave out about them and said that, you know, he had the strong sense that, you know, the Obrigkeit, the, the leaders, um, you know, they are in charge, and that's the worldly reign, and so you have to kind of obey them. And still in the 20th century, we've seen what that can lead to. Um, you know, that's mm. that sense of, yeah, you know, f following your leaders, um, mm. being, being their subjects. Uh, but what, was there a, 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 once, I mean, Luther basically condemned it, right? Uh, in pretty vitriolic language. He did, yes. Yeah. Was there, a, did that provoke a huge sense of disillusionment then with, with the, the, the Reformation project? Or did, they, did, did those people matter? In other words, the peasants at the bottom. It didn't matter as much as the leaders. So in the end, I think it didn't. It didn't hold up the Reformation. The re Reformation I mean, went ahead. That. I mean, but it is one of those really, uh, really sad chapters. I think in in the whole Reformation, 
and Reformation history, really, that fallout between Luther and Münzer. There's actually last night and tonight there's a program on BBC Four, I don't know whether you saw it, but this time they really brought in Münzer. There's this really interesting, and it's a, a German film being made about Luther, uh, whereas before Münzer didn't play any role at all uh, in any films being made about him. So he is, he's getting a greater look in what he actually did and the good things that he did. What happened yeah. to Münster, by the way, in the end? He's executed. Mm. Right, okay. Uh, in yes. <laughs> So he, he, he gets his comeuppance? Uh, well, I don't, it's not comeuppance so much, I suppose. Munzer is, he's very representative of a type of leader in the peasant revolt, but he's, he's different to some of the others in the sense that he is more of a visionary than some mm. of the others. Mm. Um, Too much of a visionary, possibly? Right? Well, he's <laughs> the, the archdevil at Mühlhausen, according to yeah. Martin Luther in the, in, the, in the famous text that Luther wrote against him. But yeah. uh, to go back to the question about what's the result of this, well, I think there are two results of the peasant revolt. One, it sends the rulers flying over to the mainstream reform as it's emerging, uh, because they um, are frightened to death by the peasant revolt. They are very taken with Luther's um, ideas about the relationship between um, church and state. Um, the other result really is that there is a connection between the peasant revolt and the um, emergence of um, more radical groups amongst the Anabaptists. Um, I think in some ways it's the trauma and the disappointment of failure that really um, causes uh, some of the leaders and some of the more middling um, peasant rebels that survive to... Um, to, to take to Anabaptist groups, which are more radical in their theology, but are also more, um, Geza would know more about um, these kind of Anabaptist groups, I think, but in the theology, but they are more, um, they are more, more um, uh, affected by ideas of being a church of the elect, of being distinct and separate from society as well. And I think that there is a connection in that sense. It's not that the peasant revolt causes the Anabaptist groups to emerge, because radical groups probably would have emerged anyway uh, in the splintering of the, of the reform movement. But there certainly is something, I think, to do here with the failure and the trauma of this great uh, experiment where they were using ideas of spiritual equality um, to translate into ideas of greater representation of the common man and of more, more equitable distribution of resources. It's not that they were looking for a kind of communist society, but they wanted a more equitable distribution of resources and a greater voice for negotiation on the part of local, local communities. They were very communally organised and a lot of them came from areas, a lot of where uh, in Swabia, for example, a lot of the, the peasant rebels there um, came from, the leaders tended to come from the upper ranks and these were people who had uh, been involved in parish councils and other kinds of communal assemblies. So they were um, quite taken with the idea of being able to represent themselves and to negotiate mm. terms of land, terms of rent, terms of labour dues and things like that uh, in an area, particularly in Swabia, where serfdom had been reinforced in the previous generation. Okay, but this it brings up one of the problems then with, with, um, with the Protestant Reformation is once it starts, once you have protesters and dissenters, where does it stop? I mean, in a sense, it bears out the, 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 the Catholic position. I mean, so you're going to get this, this uh, yeah. stage after stage, because then, of course, you have Calvin comes along, you have the, the Calvinist uh, uh, tradition. Mm -hmm. um, so where do they fit into this picture, Giza? Well, I, I suppose, um, you know, when you start a movement, you do not know where it ends up. Mm. You see, and Luther was really faced with it. I think at the end of his life, he was already fed up with kind of sort of, you know, all these different movements that was, were springing about. He was not happy about that. You know, and he famously really fell out with Calvin and especially with Zwingli over the Eucharist. Um, he wanted just certain changes, 
the next generation took it further, and then you have the kind of the spreading of all sorts of movements. Then also, I suppose, in the new world, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that's why you have nowadays so many different churches, mm. you know, uh, including whatever the Pentecostals and all of that. But that's quite removed from the more magisterial reformers, you know, like like Luther, and I suppose originally Calvin as well. Mm. Yeah. I think. Perhaps a, a pivotal moment is the colloquy at, of Marburg mm. in yes, 1529, yeah. Yeah. when there's an attempt by the various Protestant groups in South Germany and uh, Luther in, in North Germany um, to to try to, um, <clears throat> to try to subscribe to a sort of common confession because they're faced with uh, always the problems of maybe. Charles V is about to, to move in on them. Mm. Uh, and um, so they, they can agree, I think, they had 15 points. They, I think they could agree on 14, but they got stuck yeah. on the question of the real presence in the Eucharist. And the interesting thing there is it hinged on what you understood about Scripture. So the thing, the formula, sola scriptura, by Scripture alone, breaks down. Mm, when it's mm. put to the test, mm. yeah, yeah, uh, when it's put to the acid test, because people bring to it their own theologies and read different things into whatever the New Testament authors may have intended uh, when they when they wrote it. So um, immediately you get a mess. Now I just want to move. I want to move on. Just move things a bit closer to home here, right? Uh, and look at the, the the English Reformation, John, because you you were saying that that. Henry VIII detested Luther, mm -hmm. uh, and of course he he, um, he wrote against him, and then he he was given the title Defender of the Faith. Yes, uh, still one of the official titles of British monarchs, of course, mm -hmm. to this day. Um, just talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, so uh, you often hear it said, for example, that Henry VIII went to his deathbed convinced, you know, he was still a good Catholic, right? Is that true? I mean, was all this a big accident? Well, Henry is vacillating during his life. He changes. Henry is an equal opportunities monarch. In, in, July, <laughs> in July 1540, in the morning, Henry causes three Lutherans, including a close friend of Martin mm. Luther's, to be burnt at the stake. And in the afternoon, three Catholics loyal to the Pope are hanged, drawn and quartered at Smithfield. So that gives you a little vignette of, you know, if you look at an early modern monarch, it's how they execute their subjects is always interesting. <laughs> Which and is better, Henry, by the way, hung down a quarter or, or burnt? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Try, <laughs> that one, try that one, John, here. Uh, <laughs> apparently <laughs> apparently um, burnt at the stake because you're asphyxiated by the smoke first. Okay, right. It knocks you out. Must remember that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, just in case. Hang drawn and quartered is particularly nasty. Right, yeah. Mm. So, Henry is moving around. Um, there is a Lutheran movement in England. Uh, Thomas Cromwell, his chief advisor, is undoubtedly influenced by it. There are people who are trying to push a Lutheran agenda. Henry vacillates back and forward, and part of it is to do with his, his marital problems mm. as he moves from mm. spouse to spouse, mm. each of whom is backed by different factions within in the court. Initially, Henry's Reformation is essentially Catholicism without the Pope. Mm. Right. It's yeah. an independent national church. And then, because of the influence of his advisors, we get, um, for instance, it's 1549 before there's a prayer book in English. Mm, it's mm. a decade and a half after Henry breaks with Rome. Henry, Henry likes mass, mm. um, and he likes Latin mass, and he likes polyphony, and he likes all of the things that go with it. So 
Henry produces, um, in some ways, a sulk um, mm. where he has broken with Rome, but he won't be told what to do by any of the leading Protestant reformers. Would it be, what about the argument, Adrian, that the, the real English Reformation that takes place under Edward, his, his successor? Well, there, there's a lot, I suppose, to be said for that because it, it's, it signifies a major theological shift from away from the Henrysian fudge, I suppose you might say, uh, where nobody quite knew <clears throat> what direction they were moving in. <clears throat> but under uh, Edward, there's a decisive shift under the um, Somerset and so on, these people who are other effectively governing uh, because Edward's only a little fellow in short trousers. And um, they, they, they are decisively making the choice for a prayer book in English uh, and then a revised prayer book, which is much more radical than the original, rather more conservative one. So you see the direction in which it is moving very much under the influence of, um, well, increasingly of Geneva. Mm -hmm. So away from Luther's, mm -hmm. in, in, in some respects, more generous uh, theology uh, towards a much more legalistic uh, theology stemming from Geneva. Now, and of course, it's not, it's not un until the reign of Elizabeth then you have the formal establishment of a, a, an established Protestant church, Church of England. What was that, 1560? 1559. 1559, okay. Yeah. And is the, is the Church of Ireland established at the same time? Well, it goes along roughly the same trajectory. Uh, mm. uh, the the uh, what Reformation Parliament in England is 1534. You know, why did the Reformation fail in Ireland? Of course, that's, that's a loaded question in itself, but I mean, in general, it, it didn't. I mean, it didn't win the minds and hearts of, of the vast bulk of the, the people. Um, I mean, was it, was it ever likely to? I mean, I, I was looking at some figures there. I mean, the number of uh, Protestant clergymen in the country, I mean, you're talking about scores of people. You could count them on a very small number of hands, mm. you know? I mean, it, it seemed like it was an impossible task. I mean, uh, Alison, <laughs> I'll, I'll have a go at it, but... Uh. I think it is very, very difficult because we do run it. I mean, my, I'm, I'm no longer working Irish history, but I suppose in, in a sense I know you know a fair bit about it. Um, there are major problems emerging in terms of personnel. Um, first of all, with older um, bishops who are supposed to be spearheading whatever kind of reform is supposed to be coming into Ireland, who are essentially sort of sitting back and not really doing very much about it. Um, those that are brought in then, I mean, Bale and Ossery is one example, isn't it, who's brought yeah. in in the 1550s and finds it extremely difficult. Um, they're often very disillusioned, I think, by um, a kind of recalcitrance in some areas, uh, indifference in other areas. They're also, there are problems of infrastructure and um, of having enough committed clergy themselves. There's no printing press in Ireland till 1551. Um, and that is brought in to print off copies of the Book of Common Prayer. So there are even just, um, you know, resource and mechanical issues as well that the Crown doesn't really seem to be taking terribly seriously uh, in Ireland. Um, I don't know if John and Adrian and Gizem would oh. agree, but um, it, it's, it's almost like Ireland is, is sort of an afterthought when it comes to proselytization or evangelization. Well, I, John? I, I, yeah, I think the problem in Ireland is, is that there's too much going on at the same time yeah. because yeah. when the Crown tries to 
can you can conf you can basically change the religion of any large group of people over several generations, as Adrian says, more or less um, of most people. But the Crown in Ireland tries to do three things simultaneously. It tries to Protestantize the population. It fights a war of conquest, and then it it changes the nature of the population by settling about 100,000 new people on the landscape, all of whom are either English or Scottish, and tries to create a new British identity out of that. And when you try and do those three things at once, and then when 90, between 85 and 95, 90% of the population speak Irish and not English, and you don't make provision to do what the Reformation is about, which is putting the scripture and all the rest in the language of the people, mm. at the same time, or you leave it so late that it's too late, you're in real trouble. You're in real trouble. It's like trying to, um, let me see, it would be like trying to get every child in the country now to go back to reading without providing any print books and not closing down the internet. You, mm. you just can't do it. <laughs> it it's, it's just not going to work. You need to go in fast and quick if you wanted mm. to do but what about that. The, yeah, just, just, uh, the second point in your list there, though, the fact that it's a conquest. In other words, if this is coming at the point of a sword, like... Mm. It's not going to be popular, is it? There, there's a massive, there's, there's two things happen, yeah. A large number of people, the Irish-speaking people, mostly Gaelic-Irish, see this as a war of conquest and expropriation. The English-speaking population... But it is, though, but it is so, John. It is, no, no, no. This perception no, no, no. actually is. Yes, yeah. of course it is, but the English-speaking uh, population who, are ca who have been here, where we are, for four or five hundred years previously, the descendants of the Normans, also get displaced. Mm. by the new settlers and they also remain loyal to Catholicism so the group of people that Henry could have relied on and initially looks like he definitely would have relied on also go into opposition mm. so those things happen at the same time yes and then there is a perception people begin to make very very similar there's a, there's a Dublin merchant in in the reign of Elizabeth and he says this the coinage has just been devalued okay mm. and he's not happy about this because he's lost his shirt on it and he he's interrogated and someone says to him well, what about loyalty to the monarch and all the rest? He says, I can't even trust the queen with my money. How am I going <laughs> to trust her with my soul? <laughs> so effectively what he's saying is, is the Protestant Reformation, as far as he's concerned, is a scam. And there is a huge feeling among many people, and Catholic preachers are in there quick to exploit that, mm. say, this whole thing is an alien imposition. The Annals of the Four Masters say about the English Reformation, they say it is a Saxon Reformation in the term of, in mm. the sense that Saxon means English. But it, but it is though. Yes, isn't it? From, right. from the pew, that's how it looks and that's how, it's, how it is played. And then also there is very little effective preaching in Irish because some of the most committed preachers of all, the irony of the Irish Reformation, Counter-Reformation is the people who do best out of the Irish language are actually the Catholic Church. The church whose official services are in Latin because they get into the ground quickly and they're preaching and teaching true Irish, and that's what 90% of the population understand. Mm. And the other lads are turning up and going, saying, oh, by the way, we're going to take your land, and while, you're, while we're at it, would you mind terribly coming to these services in a language you don't understand? <laughs> right. Is that, is that too flippant, Adrian? <laughs> no, that, that, no, no, that, that's, uh, you can't exactly. really assume. I think that one point uh, I would make, I mean, it is rather like the Tory party doing Brexit, <laughs> a complete mess. Uh, and, and of conflicting policies because you get in the 
Henry's, an attempt, a sort of genuine attempt to try to incorporate the Gaelic nobility with this surrender and regrant thing. In other words, draw them into civil society, give them lovely titles and things like that, and eventually they'll be, you know, uh, like good, good Englishmen. That kind of idea. That that goes, uh, of course, awry. And you get the wars of conquest, and of course it, 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 it becomes a threat. And, and ironically, the people who are most loyal, the old English, they get it in the neck uh, mm -hmm. as well. So it, it's a complete mess. But uh, I think at the same time, it's important to say that um, <clears throat> Brendan Bradshaw uh, was the, the historian who, in a way, broke the logjam on the historiography of... <coughs> of the Reformation on which up to a certain point up to maybe the, I don't know what, 1960 or something, had been largely written for confessional reasons, everyone having their own take on it and defending one side or the other. Whereas Bradshaw did try to deal with the evidence and tried to show that there was a point early on in the Reformation when Ireland is not so different. There's nothing unique about Ireland. It's not so different from the rest of Europe. We, we in fact, more like it because we had considerable towns and cities unlike Wales where actually the Reformation did take. So um, it, 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 it's not simple. And um, he tried to point out that there was within the Pale in particular, the old English gentry, some sympathy for a sort of Erasmus type mm. reform within the church. So that it, it's not of itself that it was impossible in Ireland. It was just that it was messed up by a Tory regime. <laughs> yeah. By the way, of course, uh, Ren Bradshaw, another Augustinian. Yeah. Uh, yes. No, uh, Marist. 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 Oh, he's Marist, isn't he? Marist. Sorry, he's Marist. Yes. Uh, he's Marist, listen, yeah. I'm thinking of somebody else, sorry. Okay. Listen, anyone in the audience want to come in there uh, at the stage? Because I'm just looking at the, at the time here. Um, if anyone has a question or make a point, yeah. Do we have the do we have the radio mic? Yeah, we just if you use the radio mic because this this is being uh, recorded, and it'll be put up a, a podcast uh, on our website. Uh, it's from what I hear, uh, most Catholics think that Martin Luther and John Wesley were largely correct in the attitude that they took in their context of its day. On a theological point, I heard from Luther. Did he believe in the equality of God and Christ? That Christ was God as do the Church of Ireland, the Anglican people. The point I want to come to is that, I suppose, as you mentioned, the Anabaptist reform movements, the Peasants' Revolt. Can we assume that the Reformation, in part, helped create left-wing radical things like the Diggers and the Levellers? I know it didn't to any great extent, but I feel that it possibly did up to the point, especially if Martin Luther was partly sympathetic to the Peasants' Revolt, but not entirely. Who wants to take that one? That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting one. I mean, Luther as a sort of an early manifestation of, um, I don't know, left-wing left ideas, Giesel? Left-wing ideas. I mean, for, I suppose the idea of, 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 of the freedom of the Christian, that mm. would have been absolutely central to him. Left-wing ideas would have been more, I mean, if you want to put it, left-wing ideas more associated with Thomas Münzer, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, because he was so strongly for the peasants. Mm. Um, you also asked the question whether, whether uh, Luther believed that, whether that Christ was God. Well, some, 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 I do it for the left, but some part is 
Jesus Christ, only Son of God, Father, says, loves God. Well, we believe in the Trinity. Sorry? You know, Christians believe in the Trinity. Right. So he is one of the tri three persons of the Trinity. So that's just, yeah, in accordance with the creed. I think that, um, you know, the, the mainline Protestants like Calvin and uh, Luther wish to emphasize their, um, their, their orthodoxy, and they would certainly took any attack on the uh, Trinity very seriously, in fact, so seriously that uh, yeah. uh, Calvin uh, fried uh, poor Servetus, mm. was it in 1553, for his anti-Trinitarian views, just as an example to show how orthodox we are in Geneva. Mm. Yeah. Just uh, to pick up from that point, that point, I'll go to you next, uh, uh, just on picking up from that point, let's swing the, the, the argument the other way, right, which is the old uh, Max Weber argument, uh, mm. you know, Luther as a harbinger of, uh, of capitalism. I mean, uh, how does, does that idea stack up still? Mm. Well, I think he thought that that wasn't Luther so much. Uh, if, if he was dissenting, it was Calvin. Mm. Calvin. But it's kind of misread a lot of the time as well, I think, what, what Weber was trying to say. Um, there might be... I don't buy it at all, personally, myself, because I think that there are other factors that are much more, much more important. There is a burgeoning capitalism in areas already where he might identify as being the Protestant ethic areas. There are also other things to consider, such as uh, emigration. A lot of that emigration uh, into those areas is producing the kind of fluidity in business and in commerce that would um, mean that you would get those kinds of commercial practices and that kind of spirit of commerce. You, um, but there, 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 there might be an argument, perhaps, I suppose, for saying that you can see some um, evidence of it, I suppose, in terms of the way in which um, there is a, maybe a relaxing of things like uh, restrictions on usury and things like that. I suppose some of the, John would know about the Protestant divines in England in the 17th century and their commentary on things like loans and banking. And there is a, a sort of a, they are trying to negotiate a way forward to encourage capitalism without going against the the, the, the theology of their, their churches. But I don't see, personally, I don't see much more than that to it. Well, they're advocating deregulation, is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> we see where that kind of trouble goes. Did you want to pick up what the, the, the reference to you there, John? Yeah, well, I mean, actually, in, in some ways, Protestant divines had much more difficulty because of the emphasis on scripture. In fact, there'd been a long-standing yes. tradition within the pre-Reformation, in pre-Reformation Europe, where you had a, a very, what is effectively an early form of credit union, yeah. mm. which got you around these yeah. problems. Yeah. And some of the most important and failing now Italian banks are named mm. after these, but that's another story. Yeah, and I, I think they were also very good at sort of, you know, setting up local charities, you know, the local charity box that existed. There was an early idea of basically what, what later would later become kind of the social welfare state. So that's also the, the I suppose the seeds of that is already laid in, you know, with the reformers, even, even with Luther that chest that referred to the chest for the local people. So, yeah. Yep, John, yeah. Uh, why was it so inconceivable that there could be a, a, a split in the church or rival uh, churches when they had before them, before the Reformation, uh, the Lollards in England, the Hussites in Bohemia, the Waldensians in the Alps, all groups which were sort of saying some of the things that Protestants later said. So why, why was the Reformation different? Yeah. Hmm. Um, the printing press, maybe? 
Yes, you mentioned that. You know, they, they didn't have access to the printing press, so the, the idea is that the, the, the genie yeah. stayed in the bottle yeah. to some extent, stayed yeah. in the local region. They tended you know? to be very regional. Yeah. I, I think those I understood the question, it is why could they not, why was everybody, so to speak, um, caught up in the same sort of paradigm of, 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 of a single church for Christendom? You know, I, I think that's what you're saying. Um, I think it's just that, um, you know, you, people grow up within that paradigm. It's very hard to see beyond it. And um, I, I think that um, there's a long history of, uh, you know, the conciliarism and so on, but that it would always be within the context of a, uh, a universal of, of a universal church. There, there was no non-universal church so to speak, theologically available. Yes, and I, I think like Luther, a lot of these movements saw themselves as reforming, you know, that they would eventually reform yes. the church. And many of them indeed, so if you, if you look at some of the groups in, in say, Italy in the 13th, 14th century that we, who, who officially became heretics, a whole group, and one of the most important groups of all, the Franciscans, didn't become heretics and stayed within inside the structure. So people were used to this idea that there would be occasional ferments, but the belief was mm. that they would always settle down mm. and things would resume mm. as a universal church, but that that might change the church somewhere along. So people had this idea of sort of, I don't know, a cycle. And when the Reformation came, a lot of commentators thought that this was going to be yet another episode mm. yes. in this long. And their, their understanding of reformatio and of, of the term revolution, mm. they're both different to what we think about now as well. They didn't understand revolution in the same way that we would. Revolution simply meant revolving. So this was an endlessly revolving process whereby change would come about within the church itself, the church of people and church of institution. I think it took them quite a few years to realise, oh, actually this isn't going to happen and you get a lot of calls from everybody basically amongst the reformers in the first few years calling for a church council to to resolve the yes. issues and to work from within it and it's only gradually that those calls begin to to die out and the realization comes that actually this isn't that's not going to be the answer here i have two questions uh, one is about the connection between land ownership reform in, in Europe and the Reformation. Is there any connection? And my second is, if Munzer and Luther were here today, what would you ask them? <laughs> <laughs> Around the dinner table. So, the land owning question maybe first. I'm not entirely sure that I see the direction of, of that question in the sense that um, the Reformation as such did not, um, you know, produce any concept of, of uh, legal, fundamental change in legal relationships. It's a very conservative business. Uh, and um, I, I don't think that lordship or, or, or um, legal ownership really doesn't fit into that paradigm. I don't think the people thought anything beyond the um, social conventions and uh, the place of the aristocracy and so on. They, they lived within that, that paradigm. I don't think they drew any um, 
conclusions that this should be fundamentally changed, except perhaps within the Munzer type, the, 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 the extreme radical wings. Was there another question? Yes, what, what, what question will we be asking? Was that? Oh, yes. oh yes. yes. Well, Munzer and Luther. I think. <laughs> Where'd you buy your nails? Well, I think if you were kind of, you know, tactic wise, I would say, well, would you like to go for a pint? Mm. He would immediately say, yes, I'd yeah. like to try the local Guinness. And I would give him a few, you know, pints of Guinness. And then I would ask the difficult questions. You know, why did you use such polemics? Mm. Why did you make it just so difficult for yourself in many ways? Why were you so undiplomatic at times? And why did you first speak so positively about the Jews and then yeah, I was you, mention you that. spoke so badly mm. about them in the end? Yeah. You know, but I would also tell him he did some pretty good things, so <laughs> I would tell him that too. Just on that, like, I mean, there is a, 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 his anti-Jewish pronouncements. I mean, a, yeah. when you see it, I mean, because I was in Berlin recently at the, um, the Jewish Museum, yeah. you know, uh, and of course that's, that's projecting things backwards to some extent. However, you know, having said all that, right, some pretty blood-curling things. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in, you know, then in the 20th century, the Nazis used exactly that. Mm. And on, um, on, his, on Luther's birthday, 1938, on the 10th of November, they went out and they had the Kristallnacht. You know, they burned all the synagogues and they smashed the windows and all of that. So, um, it, it's one of those things, many things that Luther said, they, he said out of a moment. So you don't have a kind of a developed systematic theology like, for example, with Calvin. He writes a lot in the moment. So first, he writes very positively about the Jews. He says they should be included, they should be treated well, uh, you know, we should teach them and all of that, and he really hoped to convert them. So he really, you know, they should be absolutely integral part of society and all of that, and he really, really says some really good things. But then, 20 years later, he writes so negatively about them because they wouldn't convert, and mm -hmm. he just says they are so stubborn and they are terrible, and they should you know, you should take all their, their, their religious books away from them and uh, they should be doing just manual work and uh, you burn the synagogues and, and really awful things. You know, so I think it was this frustration that... How exceptional was that, yeah. Adrian? If you, you know, do I well, stand well, at the well, time? Well, you did get throughout uh, medieval Europe the most appalling uh, anti-Jewish uh, uh, pogroms. Mm. Uh, quite dreadful, yeah. uh, and uh, they were expelled from England in the later 14th century, I think, uh, and, and so on, so that the, there was a, a pretty hostile, so to speak, theological uh, atmosphere uh, with regard to the Jews, mainly based on this idea that they were stubborn and also, too, when you went down that road, they killed Christ. Uh, and uh, the, the, the attempt to blame that on them. But the, the only thing one would say about that is that it's not really a precursor of the Nazi thing, because the Nazi thing was based on an entirely different um, philosophy of race, which of course was not present in yeah. the 16th century. So you don't get the race and the theological hatred, the odium theological together, because the race thing didn't exist in yeah. Luther's time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very important difference, that for Luther it would have simply been inconceivable yeah. that people could not believe in Christ. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's the, that's the real difference. 
But I think it should also be said that the Nazis used Nietzsche, they used uh, Luther for their own aims, but of course distorted them. Now, anyone else want to come in here? I'm just looking again, look at the time here. Uh, yeah, just use the mic there. I just wanted to know um, how women fared in the, re mm. in the Reformation and, and whether they were treated by the reformers any better than they were by the other Christians, the Catholic Christians? That was the next question on my list here, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's a funny thing to say about women as well. Yeah, it's, um, again, it's one of those things. Um, Luther was quite traditional in his view of women. Uh, you know, he didn't kind of say they should be ordained or something. That comes years, years, centuries later when the men went to war in the 20th century, then women were, as usual, good enough so they could do the job then. That only comes about in the in the 20th century in Germany. But um, Luther writes about women kind of twice, really. And earlier on, he is quite strong about, you know, he writes a lot about Eve. And he says that Eve was subject to her husband before the fall. So women should also be subject to their men. But he does say that basically they all created, uh, they are created uh, the same. Um, they should share in everything. They should bring up the children together and all of that. At some stage he even says, because of this idea of the priesthood of all believers, um, you know, that, that the fathers and mothers are bishops and apostles and priests to their children. But he says also that basically women are still subject to their husbands and it's the husbands who are uh, also in an ecclesial manner, because the husbands are those who are kind of the, the preaching Christ. Now, when he writes about women the second time, he is more, uh, he writes about women in a more kind of equal way. Um, he gives, he speaks about Mary, uh, about Eve being a very strong kind of a heroic woman. Um, and at that time he is married, he has already six children, and his wife, Katharina von Bora, was a really strong woman, and I think she sorted him out quite often. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and he, as she says that as well, that sometimes, you know, women have to tell their husbands, you know, kind of basically what to do. Uh, so there is a mixing. He is traditional, and so the progressives and the conservatives will find, I suppose, ideas in Luther um, for or against, say, for example, the ordination of women. And to this day, you have Lutheran churches which don't ordain women and which do. Most of them do. I think um, if I, the way I look at it for the 16th century and into the 17th century is that all of the churches have big problems with dealing with women yeah. uh, in the 16th and 17th century. Um, Luther, to me, I always read Luther as being quite liking women mm. that he oh, knows yes. <laughs> and that he meets that he meets and he loves his wife he's a very good husband in lots yeah. of ways but when he talks about women in the collective or in more abstract ways that's when that negativity yeah. comes in yeah. uh, you know women you know they're, they're a bit of learning is bad for a woman uh, you know women are shouldn't be allowed to govern that kind of thing which is very conventional stuff yeah, in yeah. the 16th century um, 
And in, if we look at the Protestant Reformed churches in general, um, I think what you see, a lot, a lot of women are attracted to the Reform movement in its early years mm. because it is in a series of growth. There's, in that growth phase, there are kind of opportunities to push the boundaries when they might be able to preach, they might take on public roles. Um, and when you see more of the consolidation within the Protestant churches, they are effectively reined back into a yes. domestic role, basically. Yeah. So in some ways, in some ways, the Protestant churches can be more restrictive for women in the mm -hmm. early modern period than the Catholic Church was, because the Catholic Church had its own problems, as the Protestant churches did, with this sort of question about um, you know, Eve and about the realities of, of women and reproduction and all of these kinds of things. But I suppose the Catholic Church, when it comes through with its big reform movement, um, it has that domestic role for women, which it's in many ways very similar to the kind of domestic role that the Protestant churches have for mm. women, but it also has these very restrictive, but at the same time empowering kinds of roles in terms of the emergence of new religious orders yes. for women. Um, and increasingly as the 17th century moves on with the Catholic reform movement, you're finding that you, you have the emergence of these religious orders which are protective for women, allowing them to take on public roles like nursing, teaching, and education. And we have to remember that in both the 16th and the 17th century, a public role for any woman was almost impossible. Yeah. There was a circle of exclusions, really, that meant that women could not take part publicly in civil, ecclesiastical, or any other kind of public role within society. So it is a mixed bag, and it's it a mixed bag for all of the churches, really. It's a very transitional period. Adrian, yeah. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. One thing I think might be said uh, in favor of, um, well, we're not talking about in favor of anyone, but for Luther, is that um, while he's very traditional, he does talk up marriage, the sacrament of marriage. Mm. And uh, he does, uh, in, you know, as distinct as being good in itself, uh, not just a second class option, mm to celibacy. Yes. Mm. And he sees uh, part of the married state as being part of the divine order and all the rest of it. But he also sees it, to some extent, as about companionship. Mm -hmm. So that there's not just avoiding mm. sin or something mm. like that. So it takes yeah. him a while to get there. He doesn't yeah. want yeah. to get married at first. And in fact, he says initially, the only reason he gets married is because everyone else in the movement exactly. is getting yeah, married. Exactly, that's right. But then he takes to it rather well. <laughs> he does. Once he, once he gets there. Exactly. So he's, he's he, learns, kind of, he learns the rules. Yeah, he's quickly. got that. Can I, can I ask you a question there? How, why, did, why did that thing of married clergy become such a, 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 an issue uh, of the Reformation? Uh, you know, as, as you said, they're all, they're all doing the, it, right? It's the but first why, thing, why? If, when, you know, yeah. a cleric who throws off his Dominican habit or whatever it is, the yeah. first thing he will do after that is go to get married. Yeah. And there are lots of reasons, I suppose. Some of them maybe because they just always had wanted to. And, but it's also a highly symbolic act as well as a practical act. It indicates a throwing away of the old clerical rules and the church's rules about that. Mm. Uh, it indicates a rejection of the sacrament of ordination, which they are rejecting in and of itself. And it indicates the taking on of a new type of life, mm. a new type of Christian life as a married, as a mm. married man who is also an evangelizing kind of figure. Mm. So it's, it's a really potent kind of act mm. that they that they, they, they do. It, it creates problems down the road, though, like mm. organizational problems. Yeah. Because if you've married yeah. clergy, they have children, and exactly. then what do you do? Yes. And Probably you see not. the emergence of um, what one could describe as clerical dynasties, where yeah. mm. the father is a bishop, the son is a bishop, the grandson is the mm. bishop. So it plays out in 
in most unexpected ways. And I think the other thing as well is, is some people have been living lives of hypocrisy. There are quite a number of clergy oh, across course. medieval oh, Europe yes. oh, yeah. who were having a fine old time, but the women that they were with had no status yeah. exactly. and were reviled. Yeah. So some of them kind of, you know, said, great, this is an opportunity to, as it were, come out of the clerical closet and um, yeah. get mm. married. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's more honest. Yeah. 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 Now, anyone else may come in? Yeah. The mic there, if you could. Uh, there have always been um, Catholic priests, and certainly in Ireland, who have been uh, either married or procreating because we have names like Macanaspi, the son of the mm -hmm. bishop, Macintaggart, son of the mm -hmm. priest. So I'm sure it wasn't unique to Ireland. Mm. Oh, no, no, oh, no, no certainly no. not. No, it was in the 15th and early 16th century, it would have been relatively common for a priest to have um, a housekeeper, perhaps, or uh, a niece uh, who would uh, stay at the house. And these were often kind of common law wives, really. Um, so it I, yeah. it's, it certainly wasn't uncommon at all. And sometimes they were reviled, particularly if the bishop arrived, and, and which didn't happen that often, um, and would sort of you know, bring them out to make an example of them. But I think in some communities it was quite accepted as well, wasn't yeah. it, that they would be living there with their families. Yeah. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, it, it, clerical dynasties in the 15th and 16th century could also be uh, you know, an uncle parish priest passing to his nephew, mm -hmm. But it was also the case that it was not uncommon for uh, an uncle, uh, a father to pass, uh, a priest father to pass uh, the care onto, of the parish onto the son. And because there were no seminaries, they were simply trained in liturgy and a bit of rubric and maybe a bit of preaching, um, you know, at his side for, for, for uh, as they grew up and then, then went for ordination at that point. So there wasn't really a, a formal system of education and training for, for clergy um, at all uh, in, you know, up to the Reformation. In fact, the papal archives, the records for Ireland, are stuffed with dispensations for the kind of people you mentioned, <laughs> sons of priests and bishops, because technically all those children were illegitimate. You couldn't be ordained if you were illegitimate. Mm -hmm. So the Roman archives are full of people from all over Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Spain, all sorts of places, getting these dispensations. Mm -hmm. um, so in, some, in, in a curious way, all that costs money. And uh, the Curia wasn't entirely unhappy with some aspects of it. <laughs> I think that in some respects it wasn't generally uh, a matter of, what should I say, uh, shock or horror for pe people accepted this apparently a lot in the Middle Ages, um, but um, not, not, not necessarily universally, but I think also too in, in, in Ireland in particular, I mean you think of the other professions in Gaelic Ireland like uh, lawyers and, and doctors. It's within the family. The family is the uh, is the sort of closed order where you hand down uh, traditions like Aranux and so on. Uh, it's it's a very family kind of focused type of of, of society, and it's an, an, an almost a natural thing to happen in that kind of society. Even amongst historians, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it's still happening today. I mean, yeah. Latin America and Africa oh, yeah. yes. are, you know, most of the time living with somebody was just totally normal. So it's just gone on. Now, is there anyone else that's going to come in? Yeah, two questions here because we're, we're going to have to wrap up shortly. I'll take you first, yeah. 
Um, I just want to go back to something you were talking about earlier on. I wonder what order rulers and leaders went Protestant for the sake of finding a fertile wife? Could you repeat that there? Um, you mentioned earlier on that it was not just Henry VIII, that there was lots of other rulers that went Protestant to get rid of the wife to find one that they could have a child with. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure quite. No, um, I, no, I wasn't implying that. I, I, was, I was suggesting that in, in, in the various other tweaks, to, I mean, there are people who do get, I'm trying to think if there's anyone quite like Henry in the sort of not like the speed through which there, there may have been instances where there were people who it was easier, for instance, often to get divorces. Uh, and, and there's an emerging theology of divorce even, because once you stop, once marriage stops being a sacrament, you can be more flexible mm. in those matters. Um, but there were, there are also cases where, for instance, I mean, the Danish monarchy, uh, uh, for example, there, there are definitely, there's uh, one of the Christians becomes Lutheran in order to off, to directly oppose the Catholic pretender or, well, mm. Their, their rivals for yeah. so sometimes people do make religious decisions based on, as you say, considerations of power, but it doesn't always involve uh, marriage and religion. And, and 16th century French history is full of these full kinds of, these, of examples. Yeah. The Valois dynasty is the dynasty of yeah. kings that are um, are the are the are the monarchy in place through the religious wars uh, from the 1560s onwards, and there. John mentioned earlier about the problem of having sickly kings or kings that are too young or indeed only girls uh, that, that are there. And the French are a classic example of that. They teeter, they, they head towards civil war around 1559, 1560, partly because the mature king dies and he just leaves a couple of sickly sons uh, and their mother and it creates a kind of power vacuum. And then at the end of the century, um, the Protestant military leader, leader converts to Catholicism in order to take the throne and the French throne. And he is the first Bourbon king. And his decision is entirely for politics. Um, he's supposed to have said, uh, you know, the Paris was worth a mass. He never said that. But what he did say is that he justified it by saying, well, all of these things, they're, they're, they're really just about discipline in doctrine were kind of the same. So he had a very kind of modern take on things really that, you know, you know mm. I'm not going to lose my soul because of this, because, you know, ultimately, aren't we all Christians? And that's really one of the things on which he founded his, mm. his reign. It just, yeah. Take the mic there if you want to, yeah. Hi, thanks. Uh, it's been mentioned, I think, uh, a couple of times already, um, this idea that in the aftermath of uh, the Reformation, there comes an internal movement within uh, the Catholic Church at uh, the Counter-Reformation or uh, the Catholic Reformation. I suppose, you know, looking at uh, like uh, a chain of consequences, uh, to what extent is the, is the modern Catholic Church the incidental creation of Luther's actions? Yeah. yeah. How, how could things have gone differently? And uh, to, to what extent is the modern Catholic Church a reactive institution, uh, I suppose? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, we, we quite get to that on, on my list of questions here. Mm -hmm. John, yeah, so in sense, to what extent is the, the Catholic Church since a creature of the, of the Reformation? Um, I would say right up to the Second Vatican Council, yes. mm -hmm. very yeah. much is yeah. a yeah. creature of, of the Reformation. Yeah. Um, and then you might say that what's happened in the Catholic Church after the Vatican Council is a secondary effect mm. where the Catholic Church finally gets around to doing some of the things like liturgy and the vernacular that yeah. the reformers had proposed in the original. So I would say 
yeah, you could, you could argue that there is an argument, a historical argument to be made that Catholicism is, is, the, is, is modern Catholicism is doubly the child of the Reformation process. That would be my... I would think so. Mm. I think that's, mm. that's very true. I mean, when you read, uh, you know, documents like Lumen Gentium, for example, you know, you just find lots and lots of Luther's idea right there. You know, it's just, it's the same as when you read Meister Eckhart, you know, 200 years before Luther, you find lots of ideas that come in Luther in Meister Eckhart. So, you know, it's, it's at the end of the day, it is an or, organic development in a way. Okay, I'm going to have to wrap up here, guys. Um, well, that's an interesting point to, to finish on. We sort of finish in the same place in, in some respects. Um, I'd just like to thank our, our panel, um, um, Geza Thiessen, John, uh, uh, John McCafferty beside me here, and uh, Alison Forrestal, and of course, Adrian Empey. I'd like to thank you, the audience, in particular those people who contributed to the discussion. Uh, next, History Ireland Head School is kind of a half, half a head school. It's uh, just got two panellists, uh, part of the Dublin Literary uh, Festival. Mm. Uh, Sunday, the 4th of November, 2.30 in the RDS. We'll be, we'll be looking at Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins uh, with uh, uh, Joe Connell and with uh, also David McCullough. Uh, we'll, they'll both be discussing their books, so you're very welcome to come along to that. So I just have to thank you all for, for your attendance here and your attention. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.